As the realities of desert life start to set in, Israel becomes less and less aware of the miraculous hand that God has shown in freeing them from Egypt and sustaining them from day to day, and they come face to face with the consequences of ingratitude. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Hello and welcome to our lesson number 15, Look to God and Live. Today we're studying the chapters of 11 through 14 through Numbers, 11 through 14 of Numbers and uh, chapter 21. And the episode that gives the lesson its name, Look to God and Live, is the episode of the flying fiery serpents that are discussed in Numbers chapter 21, but we'll get to that at the end. Uh, the the theme, the the quick version of the story, going across every one of the episodes we'll discuss today, is that the Israelites are trying to get out of the mindset that they had as slaves in Egypt, and they are much like little children, where they cannot be truly grateful. Instead, they feel entitled, and when things get worse for them in some way and better in others, they can only focus on the things that are worse. So the obvious example of that is the fact that they're no longer slaves, and yet they constantly complain about not only uh, the food that they have, but the circumstances of their lives. So the first, the first episode in this in chapter 11 of Numbers is that they complain against Moses. They're murmuring against Moses and a fire breaks out in the tents and Moses prays and the fire goes away. And when anything bad happens to the Israelites, the way that it's recorded in the scriptures is that God sent it. And uh, to some extent, I mean, I, I imagine that the the circumstances in our lives are all under control of God. However, f- far more than, I mean, if, if somebody has a fire in their house today, we don't say God sent a fire to, to my house. They say, I had a fire and, uh, you know, we managed to get our kids out. We don't blame God for it. So there's a lot, they, they looked at God as the author of good and bad in all ways. And some of that is true. I imagine that God, as uh, as we learn in Ether twelve twenty seven, God gives us our weaknesses, and so we could think of those as gifts, or we could think of them as something that uh, we could blame God for. And which one of those we choose would tell a lot about what our character is like. And uh, so that tells us a lot about the character of the Israelites, as they they see everything that goes wrong as something to blame God for. But the events are these. They have a fire, and uh, they they complain about that. Then they complain about manna, and they, they're sick and tired of eating manna every day, day in and day out, and so God sends a bunch of meat. They want meat, and God sends them meat. He sends them quail, and uh, they have to deal with the consequences of that. Then again, there are some murmuring. This time it's the, the siblings of Moses, Miriam, and Aaron, and... Uh, Moses has to deal with with that, people people questioning his prophetic calling. 
and uh, finally the the story is related, and you may remember this, but they they had journeyed far enough. They'd, it'd been several months for a journey that could actually be done in more or less 11 days for the Israelites to go from Egypt to the place where they were ready to enter Canaan. And instead of sending the whole nation right in, Moses is told to send one from each tribe. And so he sends these scouts into Israel and they come back and 10 of them say, we, we're scared. It's a rich land. It's a, it's a wonderful place to live, but there are inhabitants that are already there and there's no way that we can subdue them. And two of those scouts are more hopeful. And uh, as a result, and then the people opt to listen to the 10 scouts that are fearful. And as a result, the Lord promises that none of the people that that made that decision will enter the land of Canaan. They will drop dead in the desert. And the final episode is the one with the fiery serpents, where there's um, people who are bitten by snakes can look at this brazen serpent or a brass serpent that Moses raises up on his staff. And if they will look at that, and it seems so simple, then they will they will live. Those are the episode. Those are the events that we'll talk about today. And uh, as always, if you have questions about something that we've talked about in the past, I'm happy to spend some time addressing them. Um, I'd love to get these kind of questions. So email the show at gt at gospeltoctrin.com. And if you put your name in town, I will read those part of the program in the future. Let's start by, let's start in Numbers chapter 11. Um, and I, I alluded to this already, but the first thing that happens is there's a fire. The, the Israelites are murmuring and they experience a fire in the midst of their camp and it burns up a bunch of their tents. And they, and it, it's really interesting that, uh, their response is to, rather than go get water or start creating a fire line where there are no tents for that fire to spread to, they run to Moses and I don't know. Obviously, nobody knows now what the what the exact sequence of events is, but it seems like rather than fix the problem that's causing the fire to spread, they run to Moses, and Moses prays, and the fire dies out. So they are very much like children. They depend on, uh, they, they're unable to see that the things that come upon them are the consequences of their own acts. And I, I've been thinking a lot about this because... Um, the process of maturing, the process of growing up is one where we learn that the, the state that we live in is largely a consequence of our choices. It's not a hundred percent true. Um, you know, you can have somebody T-bone you in an intersection and that wasn't your fault. You could get cancer you could get lung cancer and never have smoked a cigarette, and it's just not your fault. It's just one of those things, and those things do happen. But for the most part, the circumstances that we live with day in and day out are the results of the choices that we've made. And certainly that was the case with the fire. I mean, I doubt the Lord struck the, it, although it's possible, I doubt that he struck one of the tents by lightning and started the fire. And in any case, the way they were organizing their camp allowed that fire to spread. So... Was it a result 
of them murmuring or was it just a fire? Uh, it's possible that it was both. It's possible that it was one or the other. Um, we do believe these are inspired scriptures. So maybe Moses received revelation that, yes, that I sent that fire because the Israelites were murmuring against me. And uh, so they're starting to, to realize that um, they're starting to realize that they can't do anything without God and they're, and they're acting like spoiled children. You know, God, we, we don't like the way our lives are now. And they don't look back and remember, instead of looking back and remembering, oh, we were beaten. I remember the time when we were beaten for not being able to make the same number of bricks without straw that we could make with straw and we had to go gather our own straw and because we didn't have time to do both we were beaten severely for that and they don't instead of remembering when the midwives were actually the women they trusted to come in and help with childbirth were actually encouraged to to kill any male children that were born to their whole people uh instead of remembering that they think that they remember fondly the fact that there was enough to eat in Egypt. And they remember the melons and the cucumbers, and they, they remember the interesting foods that they used to eat, rather than the fact that their children were at times thrown into the Nile as babies, and they were commanded to do it. And they were the victims of genocide. Instead of remembering that, they are thinking about the fact that they don't like the food they're eating. So that's what happens later, very soon, in, uh, in chapter 11 of Numbers. The Israelites start complaining about manna. Now we have some interesting insights about manna here in this chapter. In Exodus, when it first describes manna, the, the picture that I always got in my mind from that description, it says, the taste thereof was like wafers made with honey. And I always thought of actual wafers that, you know, as kids, you kind of like those little crunchy wafers with a little bit of cream between them. Or a vanilla wafer. That's what the word wafer meant to, to me. And so I always envisioned either something kind of like one of those wafers or um, lately, I, I shouldn't say lately, in later years, because it describes it as coalescing with the dew, like the dew will burn off in the morning and then manna is what is left, I imagined that it was sort of the consistency of cotton candy. And it's because it described it as white, I imagined that they had white cotton candy. And because it used the word honey, I thought, yeah, it's a sweet, you know, it's like Twinkies lying on the ground every morning. Just go pick them up and eat Twinkies all day and they're super healthy for you. How, what's what's wrong with that? How could that not be great? And uh the description in Numbers here in chapter 11 is a little bit more accurate, and I think it helps us understand a lot better what the circumstances of the Israelites' daily life was. It describes, it says that manna was likened to a coriander seed. And if you've ever seen coriander seed, it's the seed that grows at the top of a cilantro plant, and it's about the size of a BB. And so if you uh, if you ever cook with coriander, you know what those... It's about the size of a peppercorn. You know what those coriander seeds look like. And so that was the, we think, that was the size and shape of manna. And perhaps even the consistency. Maybe it came as seeds. Maybe it came as little hard seeds. And the appearance thereof, it says, was like bdellium, which is um, a hardened sap. 
that falls from some of the trees in the area, which is actually almost like sugar. Uh, the you know we here in America we take the sap from maple trees and it can be boiled down and rendered into syrup just directly. You can eat that as a sugary substance. So sometimes sap is very very high in calories, and so bdellium was a food, but it's a dark. Uh, it's it's like a dark brown and a little bit translucent. So the size, the, according to the description here, and one of the hard things about any translation is that food names take the longest to learn. Food name, I've noticed this in my own life, and I imagine it's true for the Bible as well. Food names are not always the same across, even from region to region within one country. So you might you might learn the name for one food, and uh, and later on figure out that you're talking about two different things. I remember in on a tr- recent trip to Rome, Italy, the the English version of the menu describes a rocket salad, and I had no idea what rocket was. Turns out that's an English word, which means arugula. So it's a it's a type of spicy lettuce, and or it's a, a leafy vegetable that that has a very particular flavor. And in uh, in Italian, or at least in Roman Italian, it's rucola, and which is very close to what we say as arugula. But they translated into the English version, and so the the name of the food doesn't mean anything to me. And I imagine the fact that um, they're using a word that was known in England as coriander. I don't know where they got the idea that the um, that the ancient Israelites were eating something that was like coriander seed. How did they know exactly what it looked like? Um, what word did they use that meant that, and how did it how did it get translated? I mean, the best we have is that it means coriander, but how did the how did the sixteenth uh, and the fifteenth and sixteenth century translators how did they know that the ancient Egyptians were eating something that looked like coriander? Well, that's just the best information we have that it looked like a dark brown BB. And here we get a little more information in this chapter. We, we learn that they, they would take it and they would mill it, they would pound it, they would grind it and, and then form it into cakes and perhaps even cook it. So on the one hand, earlier we had the impression that it was free food that they could just go out and gather and we're like, what's the problem? Why are you guys complaining so much that your manna is going bad? You know, or or that you have to go out every day and gather it rather than being able to store it up. You just go out and you and you eat these little wafers, you eat the cotton candy on the ground, and now we understand. Okay, they have to do something, too. There's there's work required of them to harvest the manna. Now here's a here's an idea to think about a little bit. Uh, when when Lehi and his family left Jerusalem, they went from the status of living in a modern agrarian society where they're supported by by agriculture, crops, people tending crops and raising food by farming, which is actually an advanced method of providing food. They went from that method of living to being hunter-gatherers in the wilderness. And that is a huge step backward on a cultural and technological level. And the same thing happened to the Israelites. They went from living in an agrarian society where they could support high population density 
in a city to being hunter-gatherers, and because there were so many of them. And again, we don't know the number. The, it keeps the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. They keep using the number 600,000 men. But as we learned, the, the word thousand could mean clan as well. Some experts put that number at seventy-five to 80,000 men, and then with their women and children. So uh, whichever the case is, there's a high population density, and yet they're living in a desert. So the very fact they're able to survive at all, it almost seems lost on them. We should not be able to be hunter-gatherers in this desert. This, If you see a tribe of Bedouins, it's very small, and they have... And, the population density is extremely sparse because the amount of grazing for animals, the amount of water available is so low that they have to keep on the move and they have to keep their tribe within certain population limit or else they have to split. And they just can't ever form a city of Bedouins. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense. They would die of starvation very quickly. So the Israelites... It's almost like they don't realize we should be starving right now. Every day that we're here is a miracle. And the in Exodus, it describes manna as tasting like wafers made with honey. In Numbers, it describes manna as tasting like oil, fresh oil. Both of which are pretty yummy, you might say. Uh, pretty yummy tastes for people in the Middle East. They like, um, you know, an olive is a very luxurious food. It, it provides oil. And anything that has fat in it for cooking is is very desirable for providing calories. So the fact that it tastes like fresh oil to us doesn't sound so great, but this that was a positive description. We should make a note of that. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing. It's describing good food. And same thing with wafers made with honey. So the taste of manna was not bad. But they get tired of it, and I think that's understandable. But rather, it seems obvious from the way this this chapter is worded, that rather than saying, hey, we could really use some variety in our diet, you know, Moses, help us to understand. They could have taken the attitude of the brother of Jared, help us to understand what we can do, or of, or, or of uh, brother of Jared when he, when he got the the 16 stones, he came up with a solution to his problem. Or Nephi, when he was commanded to build a ship, and he said, where can I go to, to find ore to make tools? He, he came up with a proactive solution and then ran it by the prophet or ran it by God. Um, and the Israelites could have, if they had been closer to the Spirit, they could have come up with some sort of solution along those lines. Instead, they just constantly complained. And uh, Moses gets to the point. We'll talk a little bit more about this later. Moses prays in, in Numbers 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 15. He says, Lord, if this is the way life is going to be, kill me. And that's very interesting for a prophet to say. He's had so much of it that he just, he's, he's given in to despair. And he, he prays for God to kill him. Well, instead of killing him, God uh, calls 70 men to be his helpers and to to have and and it's shown in a miraculous way that these men are going to have revelation and inspiration from God as well as Moses to exercise judgment on behalf of the Israelites but even Moses didn't come up with a solution where he said God maybe maybe some other people could 
I could delegate to them a little bit. And he'd already learned that lesson from Jethro, his father-in-law. In the book of Exodus, Jethro visits the camp and says, Moses, you're taking on too much. You need to organize everyone and divide them into groups, and you need to delegate some of your authority to these people so that you don't have to sit there every day and make everyone's decisions. So he'd already learned that lesson, and yet he's still saying, oh, kill me, life is too hard. And God comes up with a solution and just gives it to Moses. And and he does the same thing to the Israelites. The Israelites are asking for meat. Even though they have this miraculous food provided every day. And finally, God says, and he, and he says a few interesting things. He says, okay, you've been asking for meat. We can, we can gather from the reply a little bit more about the request because God seems angry in his reply. He says, not only am I going to provide you with meat for a day or two days or a week or 20 days, it's going to be a full month that you're going to be eating meat. And then, then a wind arises and brings quail. And the quail are piled two cubits deep, which is about three feet deep, a day's journey in every direction. And if you were to do the math on that, uh, you would, I mean, a day's journey in every direction, three feet deep of quail, that is millions and millions and millions of quail, billions of quail probably. And they go out and they work for a day and a night and a day gathering this quail. They're very happy to see it. And the, the way the scripture describes it is that while it's still between their teeth, before they even swallow it, then God sends a plague and kills them. So I have, I have some opinions on what's going on in this chapter. The first is, it seems entirely appropriate that the Israelites should have to do some work. Throughout the centuries and millennia since the Exodus, manna has been used as a symbol, as a type, as a similitude of our need to depend on God every day for something. And usually now that is a spiritual sustenance, a relationship with him, our dependence on a higher power. And it and it's a, an object lesson that we can't forget God for very long without serious consequences. If we think that we can store up a bunch of holiness and then go for a long time like a camel, you know, taking this holiness from an experience that we had in the past, then we have the lesson of manna to contradict that, which is, uh, no, you can't do that. It's like food. You have to, it's cumulative. You have to be building your relationship, working on it every day. And that's an important lesson. And it's a wonderful one. And it's very clear that if spiritual sustenance is like food, that we can't forget it. And so this adds to that lesson by saying, you have to do some work. It's not as simple as you thought manna was, where you can go out and pick up cotton candy and eat it and always love it. Sometimes that work is going to be boring, and the results of it are going to be boring. So maybe you've read, and I know I've felt this way, maybe you've read every one of the standard works, and you know, you've read the Book of Mormon so many times, and you know when the, when the prophet says, we need, to, we need to study the Book of Mormon, you know what's on the next page, no matter which page you're on. Uh, there's a wonderful talk by Elder Bednar about meekness from the April 2018 conference. And he says, these wonderful, he, he describes uh, President Nelson and President Eyring. He, he describes their reaction to 
President Monson calling for greater focus on the Book of Mormon. These men have been studying the Book of Mormon their whole lives, and they've there may be some people who have read the Book of Mormon more than they have, but not many. And yet their reaction was immediately, oh my gosh, the prophet said we need to focus on the Book of Mormon. I'm going to take that advice to heart and start doing it. And that was one example of meekness that he gave. We'll talk a little bit more about meekness. And isn't that a wonderful example? So their, their attitude could have been the same as the attitude of the Israelites with manna. Well, I know that it's miraculous. I know that it's from God, but I'm so bored of it. This, this manna that's coming down every day that's making it possible for me to survive and my entire people to survive in a way that we could not survive. We would have to have farms to support this many people within close proximity of each other. There's no way that a group this size can survive by hunting and gathering. We just can't do it. And yet here we are doing it because of every day God is sending, God's sending us miraculous food. And so, yes, we're going to focus on being grateful for this food and working at, we're going to just keep right on working at gathering it and preparing it. Instead of having that attitude, uh, we, we sometimes think about that way about the Book of Mormon or the other scriptures. We think, well, I put in my time on that for right now. And, you know, wouldn't it be great to have some meat? Wouldn't it be great if God would, and I think this is a common trap as a general conference is coming up. Wouldn't it be great if God would give us some new revelation? Wouldn't it be great if God would reveal some new truth about the eternal nature of things or about my place in the plan? Not realizing that God is constantly revealing little things and he's already described that process as line upon line, precept on precept. It builds slowly. And it's almost like if you, and here's another, maybe this is a poor analogy, but if you eat manna every day, maybe you should become, if, you, if you're bored of that taste, maybe you should become a gourmet manna chef rather than praying for quail. In any case, the lesson that the Israelites learned was that quail wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Um, so I read the I read I read this verse a little let's let's go over exactly what the scripture says. It says that um while it was still in their teeth. So I mean let me read this verse here. When the while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people. This is verse thirty three of Numbers eleven. And the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. Now, it sounds like what happened, and if you were to read that and just take the bare meaning, it sounds like what happened was that before they took their first bite, before they swallowed the first bite, and I was I was reading this and I'm thinking, that doesn't that doesn't feel like the way God operates. So I've I've read this verse many times. Um what I think it means, and this is my own interpretation, I don't have revelation about this, I don't know for sure, but here's a question, one of these interesting questions that might be true, and it's worth asking. Um, while the flesh was yet between their teeth, to me what that means is, while there was still some quail left. So they've been eating quail for a while. It doesn't seem like God would immediately send a, a plague. First of all, Understand, God's commitment to moral agency is greater than 
just about anything else. The only thing to match it, and this is also from Elder Bednar's talk, the only thing to match it is his love for us. So he has these two competing urges, God does, his love for us and his commitment to agency. He loves both of those things very much. Well, this damages their agency if immediately upon eating this meat, they are punished with the plague and instantly die. It's what the verse makes it sound like, but the verse may not be exactly describing, or maybe this was clear to an earlier culture. Maybe there's some something lost in translation here. The way I read it is this. I'll give you my reading, and you can decide for yourselves whether you agree. They go and they gather tons and tons and tons, and it, and it, it describes exactly how much they get, but several bushels worth, several buckets full, each person of quail. So they have enough for a month. Now, it doesn't say, here's what the, here's what the chapter does not say. Did manna continue to fall during this time? During this month, were they left without manna? We don't know, but it's possible that, or it's, it's possible that they didn't have manna during this time, or it's possible that because of the newness of the quail, they have something novel to eat, that they ignored the manna. In either case, the way I read this verse is, while it's yet between their teeth, I read that as, before they ran out of quail. Now imagine if you were in the desert, and you found a bunch of quail one day, and you knew that that quail had to last you 30 days you would, it's poultry, it's like raw chicken. You would want to cook that and you would want to dry it out into jerky as soon as possible because within a couple of days, if it's been at room temperature, uh, it's very dangerous to eat. So it seems to me like the Lord smote the people ere it was chewed before it's between, while it's still between their teeth means they're still eating, they're still surviving on this quail and it start, and they and there's a plague. Now, we think that a plague means bubonic plague, that there's this terrible disease that's caused by either bacteria or a virus that's communicable between people that causes huge boils and they do, then they die in a fever. But a plague just means they didn't have a germ theory of disease. A plague just means something they can't understand. And it's a sickness and it kills people with an unseen force and they don't understand why people are getting sick. It's very simple for people in modern times to go, okay, well, they had, they were eating birds. How could they, how could the big population surviving totally on birds gets possibly have a sickness that spread throughout them? Well, yes, it could be that there was a, a communicable disease, but it could also be food poisoning from the birds that they eat and they don't know how to store properly. And that would, to me, would seem to be more in line with the character of God, which is, I'm going to I'm going to let you see the consequences of the choices that you're making. Now, God made the choice for them to give them manna. I'm going to give you manna and it's going to sustain your needs while you're in the wilderness. And it seems to be if if God said, you know, this is your only food, it seems to be a very miraculous thing that one food that would show up naturally would provide a balanced diet to the point where they wouldn't have any form of malnutrition, they wouldn't have scurvy, they wouldn't die of dysentery. For those of you who grew up playing Oregon Trail, you had, you, that was a video game, a text-based video game where you had to, you had to go on the Oregon Trail, and if you didn't, if you didn't put the right foods in your cart, then 
you know, one of your children would die of dysentery. So they're out there in the, uh, in the wilderness, not dying of dysentery, not dying of scurvy, not dying of any of the number of, of beriberi, any of the number of malnutrition diseases that we know about today. They have a balanced diet from just manna. That's pretty miraculous. And then all of a sudden, they switch to pure meat, and they learn the natural consequence of that choice, which is, number one, you have to, you have to work hard to preserve meat over any length of time. And the, the work involved in gathering meat might be more, and, and gathering and preserving meat might be more than the work involved in gathering and preparing manna every day. And it kills you. That's a little detail that they learned. That would seem to me to be more in line with the way God works, which is, yes, you can have your choice. You can have the consequences of your choice, and here they are. And usually when people do that, they realize that they would always rather have what God intended for them rather than what they wanted for themselves. That is the important thing to recognize about commandments. It when you're a child, or at least when I was a child, I felt like, I shouldn't say the whole time I was a child, but for a, for a while when I was a child, I thought, oh, commandments are arbitrary rules that God set up that it's his desire to exercise power over us. And as I matured in my understanding, I realized, no, commandments are more like signs. They aren't fences that keep us out of the things that we want to do. They're more like signs saying, stay on this path because, you know, maybe you're in the middle of a minefield and this is the safe path through. But if you want to wander from the path, go ahead. But if you get blown up by a mine, you only have yourself to blame. And that seems to be what God is teaching here with the, with the quail. Number one, uh, you can expect to do some work even when the help that you receive is miraculous. And that's that's a wonderful extension of the lesson of manna, which is we get we get sustenance from God spiritually, and we can expect to do some work. That doesn't make it less miraculous. It just involves us in the process. And if we want something different, if we if we because it's the same day in and day out, we complain about it and say, well, we want something different then yeah, God will give us some of that and it will be more than we can handle and we won't, we won't know how to preserve that either. And it may lead to a spiritual sickness that we have no way to counteract and can't even recognize as coming as the consequence of what we chose. They blamed it on God. God sent a plague. But really, it may well have been just the natural consequence of eating quail for 30 days. That's chapter 11. In chapter 12, we have an interesting episode. Miriam, who is described in Exodus as the prophetess, uh, and Aaron, they're murmuring against Moses, um, it's, or spake against Moses, as it says. It's interesting, the, the form of the verb spake, which is used here, is feminine. So the subject of that verb is Miriam. Um, and that answers one of the questions that comes up later, because uh, Moses and Aaron, they're, they're murmuring against Moses so much that Moses has to come and deal with the problem. And it's Miriam that is punished. And you can read that and say, oh, was, you know, this is one more example of how the culture of that time was sexist, and even God is sexist. 
Miriam and Aaron are both murmuring against Moses, and it's Miriam that is punished. Uh, so we'll talk about why that probably is not the case, but first, the first reason why is that it appears that Miriam was the one driving this. And Aaron, once again, he finds himself in the position of going along when the people around him are making a terrible choice. The first example, or the the main example of which, is creating the golden calf. Moses is delaying up on the mountain. He's receiving, at that moment, commandments to have no other gods before me, to create no graven image. And Aaron is down with the Israelites below saying, yeah, give me all your earrings and I will, I will fashion them into a graven image that you can worship instead of Jehovah. So Aaron is showing himself to not have a whole lot of backbone. And here he is again. He's, he's enabling Miriam when she's murmuring against Moses. The, there's a quick side note. I hope I won't take much time about this, but it's interesting. Um, it describes the reason for their murmuring, and we don't know whether whether there's more to the story than this or not, but that that Moses had an Ethiopian wife, which is also, uh, if you look in the footnote, a Cushite. Now, Cush was the country to the south of Egypt, and it's modern-day Eritrea, Ethiopia, Sudan, uh, but there was a nation there of black people. And so Moses had a black wife, probably, some people think that Cushite is used to describe Zipporah, who is the Midianite wife that he found. Now, Midian was an Arabian country uh, in the present-day Sinai Peninsula and a little bit eastward. So Sinai and Saudi Arabia, northern Saudi Arabia, the Gulf of Aqaba, which is the, which is the eastern leg of the Red Sea. And Cushite is south of Egypt, so there's two different directions there. But there's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting episode in Josephus, who is a who's a historian, a Jewish historian, and he relates the or, or uh, who who wrote the history of the Jewish people, and he relates the story of Moses around the time of before he leaves Egypt as being a general, and Moses came up with a way to invade Cush, which involved um, stealing a march on them and having a surprise attack because the Cushites, the Ethiopians, they considered themselves well defended because there were a ton of snakes there. And Moses brought these hunting birds, these predatory birds in baskets, and then he freed them. And they went and killed the snakes and the mar- the army was able to march across that dangerous land. And come upon them by surprise, and then they surrounded the city, but the city was defended by the river, the Nile River, and so one of the princesses of the city fell in love with Moses, and uh, her, her name is Tharbis, and she offered to deliver the city mo- to Moses if he would marry her, and he promised to do that, and so she delivered the city, and Moses gained great notoriety as a general for doing this. And then he married her. And when he returned to Egypt, that's when the Egyptians were threatened against the Jews is because Moses was this powerful general. 
So that's an interesting side note. Hard to know exactly what the truth of all of that is. It seems like a very fantastic way of freeing up an, uh, a road for an army of bringing birds in baskets and having them kill exactly those snakes that you need killed. But um, regardless of the truth of it, that's, that's one idea of who Moses's Ethiopian wife was. And then later in Exodus, the commandment is given again through Moses that you cannot mix with the Canaanites when we go into Canaan. You can't take a wife from among their people because you're going to follow after their gods. And when the time comes, your your sons will marry their daughters and then you'll your sons will go whoring after their gods and serve them instead. So was was this Ethiopian wife that another another theory is that Moses went south to Cush instead of to Midian right away. And that's where he met Jethro and Zipporah and their family. And then they, they all ended up in Midian together. And that's one theory. In either case, this might've been a racist objection that Miriam had. Um, it might've been an objection because uh, Moses might've had a wife that didn't that refused this was before Moses was truly a Jew truly a follower of Jehovah when he would have married this Cushite princess and maybe he considered that to be when when he once he was called as a prophet one of the midrash legends is that um this Ethiopian wife of Moses complained because once he was called as a prophet he told her that he could no longer be her husband and so one idea among Jews is that uh, Miriam heard about this and there was this wife of Moses said about the 70 men called to help Moses in chapter 11. Well, I'm sorry for their wives because now they'll, they'll be too holy. Their husbands will be too holy for them. And uh, so that's one idea of what was going on. In any case, Miriam is questioning the prophet. God, the, God's response makes it obvious what... So that's, that's the side note, and hopefully that was interesting to you. But uh, in any case, Miriam has questioned the prophet for things that don't really concern her. And God, God's answer makes it clear what the difference between a quote-unquote prophet and the prophet. Now, Two of the men, to, to illustrate the point, I'm going to go back slightly in this chapter. Two of the men who were called didn't quite make it out to the tabernacle to be what we would consider set apart. But instead, they, they start receiving revelations where they are. So they were called, and then uh, Joshua reports to Moses, hey, they're, they're prophesying anyway, even though they didn't come. And Moses says, that's great. I would, I would that the entire nation was prophets. So in other words, a prophet is somebody who receives revelation from God. And with that, with that understanding, we go into this story and we realize that Miriam is a prophetess. She does receive revelation from God, and that, the, that revelation might enrich not only her own life, but other people's lives around her. And yet, God makes a crucial distinction, and he says, when I speak to a prophet, I'm going to talk to him in dreams and visions. But when I speak to Moses, there's no, there's none of this guesswork involved. I speak to him directly face to face. And modern experience would suggest that even among prophets, that's 
quite extraordinary that when God speaks to a prophet face to face, I mean, we do have that we don't we don't have record of anyone receiving those revelations as often as Moses did. We do have revelation or records of Joseph Smith receiving those kinds of revelations from time to time, but even he considered them very precious and sacred. And with Moses, it happened, and the, perhaps this is because our records are so abridged from that period, and maybe those events are, anything in between those events are skipped, but we have it happening over and over again quickly, and it seems to happen almost on demand. Whenever Moses needs God to appear, God will either appear and talk to Moses, or in this case, somebody speaking against Moses, and God summons them to the tabernacle and says, uh, you, you are wrong about Moses. Moses is my chosen prophet. So that's very interesting. And Moses is quite extraordinary, even for a prophet, the, the amount of access that he seems to have to God. Or let me put it this way, the physical stewardship that God has taken over that people seems to be unparalleled in other time periods. We don't see God appearing in a, in a pillar of cloud every day following us for 40 years anymore. So there was something about the, the Israelites and their mission that made God involve himself in a way that is extraordinary. Um, so Moses, so one of the p- penalties is that Miriam is leprous and leprous is uh not exactly, again, like a plague. It's not exactly how we would think of it. Leprosy is a specific disease that we have now, but back then it could mean dry and scaly skin. In any case, it made her ritually unclean. It made Aaron unable to go near her. And so the penalty was upon both of them because Aaron would have been rendered unclean as the high priest. He would have been rendered unclean just by his proximity to her. And Aaron has an interesting prayer. And he says in verse, uh, and this is now we're in Numbers chapter 12. He says in verse 11, lay not this sin upon us. I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us where, wherein we have done foolishly and wherein we have sinned. In other words, please don't blame me. At least he's no longer saying, oh, the, the Israelites convinced me to make a, a golden calf and I had to do it. He didn't, he didn't make some excuse where it was somebody else's fault. He says, we sinned, but please don't put that sin on us. And, uh, Miriam, her skin, she's described as white as snow. And that's one of the, if, if this is the case that she was murmuring against Moses because of racism, then one interesting idea is that just like with the quail, God said, oh, you want quail? Well, here you go. More quail than you ever could have wanted. He's saying, oh, you want white skin? Here's more white skin than you ever could have wanted. It's white and scaly. And uh, so Aaron pleads for forgiveness. Moses, immediately, he doesn't hold any animosity. And he immediately pleads for her to be healed. And God, the response from God is, well, even if something minor happened, like her husband spit in her face, which I, uh, you know, there are a number of ways you can become ritually unclean. 
in the under the law of Moses, then she would be put out for seven days. So let her be put out for seven days. And the entire nation of Israel waited. They didn't move their camp for those seven days because Miriam was beloved among them, which was part of the reason why it was important for God to deal with the problem of her murmuring against the prophet. It may have been, racism may not have been the the motivating factor for her murmuring, but the point is, the prophet is more important than a prophet. And that lesson continues today when, when God says, with, with a, when I speak to a prophet, I'm going to be, God says, if there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses, this is verse 6 and 7, my servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. So Moses has stewardship over every aspect of life. And his revelations are to be respected. That, and that's just, a, that's just a foreign idea to Miriam because, number one, she was the one who went and found Pharaoh's daughter and arranged for Pharaoh's daughter to hire Moses' mother to nurse him when he was a baby. So she's thinking, oh, this baby that I looked after as a child that I arranged, I'm going to now listen to every word he says. I'm, I'm going to respect him when he takes a wife outside of Israel. What about me? I'm a prophetess. And Jesus himself had some of these same complaints. He was, he was doubted by people who knew him as a child. Isn't this Joseph's son whom we know? Why is he having these heirs? that he's such a great prophet, that he's the Messiah. Um, again, to refer to Elder Bednar's talk, he describes the difference between meekness, and here in this chapter, Moses is described as meek above any that lived on the face of the earth. And Elder Bednar describes meekness as the willingness, the difference between meekness and humility is that meekness is the willingness to learn from people not only who know more than you, but who know less than you. That's my own paraphrase. He didn't phrase it exactly that way. But someone who you're, you're willing to listen to everyone. And Moses did not get angry with Miriam. He was immediately praying for her to be forgiven and showing his meekness. And Moses, even though he was the prophet, was willing to pay attention to everyone in Israel and try to learn from them. And Miriam is showing that she wasn't. And not only was she not being willing to learn from someone who knew less than her, she was willing, she was unwilling to learn from someone who was a great prophet. And that's what happened with Jesus as well. People were saying, well, we question Jesus. And so the real lesson behind meekness, it's almost like, um, Jesus saying, this woman is forgiven because she loved much in the, in the tale of Simon the Pharisee, but unto whom uh, little is forgiven, then he loveth little. And that was actually a sarcastic message because this Simon the Pharisee who questioned Jesus' forgiving sins of the, the woman who was, who was bathing his feet with her tears he actually had to be forgiven for a lot, but Jesus made it sound like he didn't have to be forgiven for as much as this woman. 
and the assumption of Miriam, the assumption of the people around Jesus was, well, I know more than this prophet. And the truth is that they wouldn't have even had to be meek to learn from the prophet. But the point, and, and I... And I relate Elder Bednar's talk to those episodes this way. The point of meekness is we might presume to think that other people, we have nothing to learn from them. And the truth is God does not look at people, does not rank people hierarchically that way. It doesn't actually take meekness to learn from someone who's not as smart as you. It takes, it takes meekness to realize that lessons come from, from every person around you. And that smart doesn't matter. God doesn't see our value based on human judgments like smarter than, prettier than, richer than. And meekness is a willingness to see that God places value on everyone. Now we get to chapter 13 and 14. And the, the 12 scouts that go into Canaan... One is sent from each tribe, and the two tribes from which, well, let me put it this way, the, there are 10, these 12 men visit Canaan, come back, and there are 10 that say, yes, it's a rich land, it's someplace we would all love to live, but there are giants that live there, there are people there that are mighty, there's no way we can conquer them, there's no way we can do it. And the two tribes that are represented well are, interestingly enough, Judah and Ephraim. And Judah are the tribes of modern-day Jews, and Ephraim is the tribe of modern-day, the modern-day LDS church mostly. Uh, uh, Most of the members of the church come from the tribe of Ephraim, and the mission of the church is the mission of the tribe of Ephraim, which is to bring the gospel to all the world. I thought that was an interesting side note. Um, now in this moment, well, I shouldn't say in this moment, one of the, one of the interesting facts about the Torah is that not everything is told chronologically. So it looks like it's in this moment, Joshua or some, somebody that we don't recognize called Oshea is renamed to Jehoshua. And these are all Joshua and Joshua is the prophet following Moses. So Joshua is one of these scouts, and he, and he first distinguishes himself by being one of two valiant people who say, yes, we're, we're up to this challenge. The nation of Israel, God has called us to go take over this land, and we can do it. And Caleb is the other one who says, let's be faithful. It's not exactly described what the charge of God was to the Israelites at this time, but it becomes obvious by his, his penalty that it was a commandment. It wasn't just go and see what you whether you like Israel or not, whether you want to go do it. He commanded them. I have given, I have delivered the Canaanites into your hand. I've given you this land. I've promised it to your forefathers. Now go in and take possession of it. And here's how you're going to do it. You're going to make sure that you don't intermarry with them. And you're absolutely going to do it. And I will be with you. And instead of following that commandment, they say, no, they listen to the 10 people. No, we're afraid. We don't want to go in there. And God says, okay, here's the penalty. Every one of you will die in the wilderness. Your children who are under 20 are going to survive to inherit this land, but the rest of you are not going to make it. They're, you're going to be 40 years in this wilderness. And it wasn't because they didn't know how to find 
Canaan. I, I, as I've mentioned before, I, I used to think that that was the case when I was a kid. God cursed there. It was almost like removing the Liahona from them. They knew exactly where Canaan was, but God forbade Moses from taking them there. And they could have gone there at any time. And in fact, this in this episode, we have some of the people said, well, okay, you know what? We, we changed our minds. Okay, God, we'll take it. And God, and Moses said, no, now it's too late. God will no longer be with you at this moment. He's already spoken. He's not going to, he's not going to bless your efforts if you try to go and take possession of the land at this point. And some of them did. And they went into Canaan and they were killed and, and driven out. So that was their penalty and it came right away. And the rest of them, they had to die of old age in the desert. And, uh, the, the point of the lesson is this, they were still children in much the same way as they were about the manna. They were still children about relying upon God. Did they, were they a fighting force? Uh, they had had a few battles by this point, but they weren't a military nation. They didn't have, they perhaps didn't have the technology of a lot of weapons and armor that they might've needed. And if they had needed that stuff, God would have given it to them. They didn't have the faith is what they didn't have. And they still didn't believe that God could do anything for them. And their children, having not, having not lived through uh, the flesh pots, quote-unquote, of Egypt, having not had to look back with fondness upon slavery, their children grew up and thought, okay, well, um, either all of our lives or most of our lives, we've lived here in the wilderness, God has seen to our every need, and now we do believe that we can go into Canaan and and God will be with us. God could not bless the people of Israel with that military victory unless they had that faith. He needed one in order to get the other. And so it seems, again, it seems like God is being angry and a little bit offended that the Israelites didn't listen to his the two scouts that were faithful. But we know the character of God, that God loves the Israelites. It seems more in line with with what God meant to say, which was, I I can't work with you. If you are not going to believe in me, I can't bless you. And therefore, here's the consequence. I have to wait until until I have a people that will believe in me, that will believe that I will bless them, that will believe in my promises. Then I cannot provide miracles more than I've already done. I can't provide this particular miracle of military victory. I can't provide it on your behalf. It just won't work. A quick note about the name of Joshua. So Oshea, as he's named in uh, chapter 13, is Joshua. And that that word means, it's the same word, incidentally, as the prophet Hosea, which is one of the books in the Old Testament. It means salvation. And then right afterwards, and this is why I said that the, the Torah is not always chronological, Right afterwards, it says Moses named him Jehoshua. Now, he may have named him right then when they sent them out, but more likely he he named him that at some other time. So it's almost like a child telling a story. They They don't have a modern literary tradition in the days when the Torah was written. So it's almost like a child telling a story. Oh, yeah, I just remembered that at one point Joshua was renamed. So the name Jehoshua may have been given to him years later or may have been when he returned and was faithful. But the the J-E at the beginning of it 
the J-E-H is the first syllable of the name Yahweh. So instead of salvation, and the is is understood in Hebrew. So if you say Jehovah, salvation, what you're saying is a sentence. Jehovah is salvation. And that's what Joshua's new name is. And that is the name Joshua. Jehovah is salvation. Now again, from what from the na- meaning of the name Jehovah that I have proposed, that is a sentence meaning not only Jehovah is salvation, but because of the peculiar nature of Hebrew, the is is understood, and if you take it out, then you can use the name of God as the verb. And the meaning of the name of God, it, as I've as I've speculated, is he will cause to exist. So Jehovah will bring about salvation, is an, or he will bring about salvation is another way to interpret that name. Why do I, why do I care about this? Well, um, there's there's an evolution of this name within the very scriptures. Uh, Oshea, the the original name of Joshua, is renamed Jehoshua, but the book of Joshua is called Joshua, and, and, and Joshua is called by that name every other place he's mentioned. That's a natural shortening, and you notice that Oshea, the E-A, is the ending at the end. Well, in Hebrew, if you change the, the subject, the prefix at the beginning of a root, then the vowel sounds will reflect it later on. So, And the, the benefit of that is even if you shorten the name, you you can trace back the changes that have been made to that word. And so because Joshua has a U-A at the end, we can tell that even though it starts with J-O, at one point it was changed to to have the name of God in front of it. So and some of the names in the uh, in in Hebrew that start with the J-A-H are shortened and then they lose that J-A-H and they have a J-O, like Joel means Jehovah is God. But it doesn't start with J-A-H. But we can tell by the way that the rest of the word has been changed that originally it was changed to that. So it's an interesting note about Hebrew is that Joshua, even though it doesn't have to have its long form of Jehoshua, it still means Jehovah is salvation. Or by my interpretation, he will cause he will bring about salvation or he will cause salvation to exist. And there's also a little, there's a little bit of controversy. Does, does the word Jehoshua come from Oshea, which is salvation or Shua, which is a cry for help. They're related words. So there are two interpretations there. The name Joshua can mean either Jehovah is salvation or Jehovah is my cry for help. Later on, in Hebrew, the name is rendered Yeshua, which does preserve the J-E, the, the J-E of Jehovah rather than the J-O of Joshua. But they're the same name, Yeshua and Joshua. And the reason this is notable is that is, Yeshua is the name that was rendered by the writers of the New Testament as Jesus. So the name of Jesus is, we see it here for the first time, in its original form, Yehoshua, which is he will bring about salvation. And 
Jesus was named after, it was a common name, it was a common given name at the time of Jesus, but he was named after this Old Testament prophet who was renamed by Moses, a man who was likened very often to Christ. An interesting, an interesting etymology and an interesting way to interpret the name of Jesus. He will bring about salvation. And Jesus Christ, the word Christ is a Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Meshiach, which is the anointed one. So he is the anointed to bring about salvation. The word Jesus Christ is a testimony of, of Jesus. Um, all right. Now let's get to the important part of the lesson. This is the part you've, you've all come to hear about. The fiery serpents. And it is very well understood. It's taught, and we, and we understand this because of the Book of Mormon. And uh, Alma made reference to the episode of the fiery serpents. What happens? Um, the, the Israelites are once again complaining. And this is the third time, if we discount what Miriam and Aaron did, this is the third time that the entire nation is complaining. If we count that, it's the fourth time. So there's a lot of complaining against Moses. And as a punishment, God sends fiery serpents among them. Well, um, I've been thinking a lot about this episode, and here's what I've always envisioned in the past as to how it appeared. They're out, they're out marching one day, and all of these serpents appear out of nowhere and start biting everybody. And the first few people that die, and they die instantly if they're, if they're struck by one of these snakes. And they're, fi- and they're fiery flying serpents as it's described in the scriptures. So these are almost supernatural snakes. So if we read this on the surface, uh, I think we get, this is my opinion now, we get a mistaken idea of what this episode actually looked like. Um, the, in verse six of, uh, now we're in, we're in Numbers chapter 21. In verse six, it says, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and much people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. Now, this didn't happen in one episode. Moses had to make a fiery serpent, a a serpent of brass. It says in verse 9, Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. So this would have taken several days. I think what happened, my own opinion now is, the, the incidence, the likelihood of snake bite increased dramatically during a period when the Israelites were murmuring. So they started to notice, hey, a lot of us are being bitten by snakes. And these are fiery serpents. What that means is a burning serpent. The word is actually seraphim for fiery. And that's the same word that is used for angels later in the book of Isaiah. So these are burning serpents, and it means that they're venomous. And, in, and the word for flying can also mean flickering. It's, it's a quick movement. So they're venomous snakes that strike out of nowhere. It's not a devilish dragon flying out of nowhere and breathing fire and, and killing people. It, it is a snake that strikes from, from concealment, maybe, maybe something that is uh, naturally camouflaged in this desert 
climate in this desert environment comes out of nowhere and strikes and people it's the venom is such that people die from it and it's probably quite painful and um incapacitating incapacitating before they die and moses has to forge this serpent of brass so the likelihood the the commonness of this event goes up people realize that it's happening they start getting afraid of of turning over any rock or plant and that's when they go to moses and they you know maybe they maybe a lot of people have someone close to them who's killed by a snake bite and then they go to moses and say as a as a superstitious people would do they say we're being killed because of the they start looking at their own behavior and saying what um, what are we doing that is causing this to happen and they go to moses and say we repent of this so moses raises a serpent of brass and was it a single day where everyone's getting bitten by snakes and then they look and they're instantly healed this is also what i used to think that everyone is almost everyone in israel is simultaneously bitten by snakes and when they look at this serpent of brass, then they, then they instantly recover from their snake bite, and those who don't look die of their snake bite. Now, if we remember, again, the commitment that God has to agency, we, this is not agency. If you are threatened with death if you don't do something, you have no freedom to not do that thing. Therefore, what I think, here's what I think happened, and, and this is something to consider. People were getting bitten by snakes as they traveled, and Moses is standing up front, walking with his big staff in his hand, and it's a visible snake on a pole. If you're bitten by a snake, you have the choice, Some, and it might be hard to do because Moses isn't visible at all times. You have to look at the pole, or you have to deal with your snake bite, and it might be tough. And people might say, you know, I just got bit by a snake. I'm going to try to suck out the poison. I'm going to try to cut a little slit between the two teeth marks. I'm going to, whatever people try to do when there's a snake bite, I'm going to try to deal with it myself, or I'm going to do what Moses told us to do, which is look at this pole. I don't see, and as, and as we would not have had this insight were it not for the book of Mormon, by the way, the, those who rely only on the Bible, they don't realize that this is the case. But Alma tells us that because of the simpleness, the simplicity of the way, a lot of people just wouldn't do it. They didn't think it would actually save them. And so they, a lot of people died because they wouldn't look. But what I think happened was not, if you looked, that you instantly were recovered from your snake bite. This is where agency comes in. If you looked, it just turned out later that you weren't the one of the people who died. You still had to deal with the snake bite. This, to me, would be more in line with the way God works. When we look to God and live, as the, as the title of the lesson says, we have, a, have an object lesson right there. We, when we do the things that are in our modern day, in our modern lives, looking at, looking to God, reading the scriptures, praying. It's not instant that we recover from our spiritual wounds, that we have a solution to the problems of life. We look to God. And then in retrospect, we can look back and say that period of my life where I was praying every day, where I was reading the scriptures, it seemed like my problems were less. 
in retrospect, I, I was writing in my journal and I can see very clearly God was intervening in my life in these little ways that caused me to get through that problem. And later on, I had a problem where I didn't rely on God and I didn't have anything like that much help. And my guess is that those people who are willing to look at the brazen serpent were the same people who survived, but they didn't get to know it while they were going through it. They looked at the serpent and then they thought, well, I tried it. Now I've got to deal with my snake bite. And then it just turned out later that day, you know what? I didn't die. Two hours have passed. Three hours have passed. The, the time it normally takes for someone to die of a snake bite. And I'm okay. My leg hurts. Wow. It hurts for three days. I'm, I'm hiking on this snake bit leg, but I'm okay. I survived. It's too bad that my brother died. He and I were bitten at the same time. It's interesting. He didn't, you know what? I just realized he didn't look at Moses's brazen serpent the way we were commanded. And in retrospect, they probably realized, oh, it's the people that looked that survived. But during the time, they had the agency. They didn't realize they were making a choice that affected their lives. Because if they did, then it's like somebody holding a gun to your head. And that's not the way God works. He works by giving us the choice. And the natural consequence is he can either intervene miraculously to save you, or if you're not willing to show even as much faith as it takes to look, then he can't. He can He cannot intervene. And so it seems cruel. Oh, God killed all those people who wouldn't look. It's the exact opposite. There were snakes among Israel. They were, they were hiking in dangerous desert terrain. And God was willing to intervene in the lives of those people who would provide the minimum of effort, but they didn't get to know it right away. They didn't miraculously spring up onto their feet and have no pain. They had the same pain as everyone else. It's just that God enabled them to survive it. And he saw them through it. I have one final lesson to recount, and we're going to go back a little bit to the story of the scouts that went into Canaan. And one of the men that came back, one was Joshua, after whom Jesus was named, and one of them was Caleb. And there's an interesting story about Caleb. And he says, um, well, I'm going to make reference to a talk, a conference talk by Spencer W. Kimball from 1979 called Give Me This Mountain. And uh, so I recommend this talk to you. But what happened was, Caleb was one of the people who was faithful to Moses and, and he was promised that he would survive. Even though every person over 20 would not survive, Caleb and Joshua were promised they would survive to go in and take possession of the land of, of Canaan. Now here we are in Joshua chapter 14. This is Caleb talking to Joshua, who's now the prophet. And they are one of the, one of the biggest threats that these scouts saw in the land of Canaan was the people of Anak. And that word means a long neck. So they were called giants. They were considered to be the descendants of the giants of the time of before Noah. However, that worked. And they saw these people that they were huge people. And 10 of the men lost all heart. But Caleb said, let's go up. We can, we can take these guys. And here in, uh, Joshua chapter 14, verse 7. This is Caleb. Now, it's 45 years later. He says, 40 years old was I. 
This is Joshua 14, 7. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to espy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever. Because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. So Caleb was faithful, and he recommended that they go in. And now he's, now he's saying later on, uh, it's time for God to keep his promises to me. Here we are in verse 10. Behold, now the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. He's eighty-five. As yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me, as my strength was then, even so is my strength now, for war, both to go out and to come in. And I I don't think it's possible that he's physically as strong. So he's saying, I am as dedicated, I am as faithful now as I was then. I believe as much in God as now as I did then. And here's the here's the important quote, after which President Kibble named his talk in verse twelve. Caleb says, Now therefore give me this mountain, whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And in the next chapter in Joshua 15, Caleb does that. As an 85-year-old man, he goes in and he conquers this land that he's been promised. And uh, President Kimball had this to say. Caleb concluded his moving declaration with a request and a challenge with which my heart finds full sympathy. The Anakims, the giants, were still inhabiting the promised land and they had to be overcome. Said Caleb, now at 85 years, give me this mountain. This is my feeling for the work at this moment. There are great challenges ahead of us, giant opportunities to be met. I welcome that exciting prospect and feel to say to the Lord humbly, give me this mountain. Give me these challenges. Humbly I give this pledge to the Lord and to you, my beloved brothers and sisters, fellow workers in this sacred cause of Christ. I will go forward with faith in the God of Israel, knowing that he will guide and direct us and lead us finally to the accomplishment of his purposes and to our promised land and our promised blessings. That This is an amazing talk and it's an amazing lesson and example from the scriptures when uh, Caleb, as an 85-year-old man, said, give me this mountain. So for me, the, the wonderful things that I'm taking from this lesson are, number one, the idea that we can look to God and live, and we won't know right away unless we're tracking these things with our, with our journals and with our prayers and with our, not only our prayers of supplication, but our prayers of gratitude Unless, unless we're paying attention, we won't know all the ways in which God is intervening in our lives. And instead of being grateful for the manna that is constantly around us and being willing to do the little bit of work that is required, we will ask for things, we will ask for the quail that will, in the end, not nourish and, and support us. Um, if we are not paying attention and appreciating those miracles and recording them. And secondly... We should 
work on having the kind of faith that allows us to say, give me this mountain. As President Kimball said, give me these challenges. If you were alive as I was when President Kimball was the prophet, he lost almost his entire voice. And as somebody who served the Lord by speaking, this was a huge challenge. And that was just one of many that he had. So he rose to that challenge. And uh, Caleb, as an 85-year-old man, conquered these giants that younger men whose whose stature caused younger men's hearts to fail them. So God has promised to be with us. And at a similar age, President Kimball conquered his giants. And we can too. We can, we can move into those challenges that God has promised us with faith and with assurance that he's with us. And it may be that we only see those miracles in retrospect. But if we are willing to do that little bit of work each day to keep God in our lives, then it is his promise that he will be there and he will intervene miraculously on our behalf. And we know that he will keep all of his promises. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.